Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, super fans. You can join Terry. <laughs> Terry Farrell, the Trek experts in outer space. As we make the trek to the greatest Star Trek locations of all time, along of all with all time, gal- all time, everywhere all time. in the known universe, along with a galactic gaggle of Trek and sci-fi celebrities, galactic. how much constitutes a gaggle? Well, I don't at, know. At, at least two or three. I have never right. bothered to calculate it. <laughs> well, pre-production has already begun, but you can get some great backer awards and help us get production going this summer by joining us at MakeTheTrek.com today. That's MakeTheTrek.com. And check out everything you can do to support the Trexperts and Terry Farrell as we boldly go to the greatest Trek locations of all time. We may even tell you what God needs with the Starship. The Trexperts are back on the road again as We're our back. glorious... We're back, We're back, baby. We're back. The Inglorious <laughs> Live Tour continues back. in 2024. And we're visiting some great cities near you, so don't miss a chance to get exclusive Trexperts merchandise, autograph posters, and see us moderate conversations with the biggest stars in the Trek universe coming to a galaxy or at least a city near you this year, including Richmond, Virginia, Anaheim, California for WonderCon, Oklahoma City, May 24th through 26th, San Diego, California, for Comic-Con with Mark and Ashley, July 24th to 28th. But if Mark and Ashley aren't your cup of tea, well, where are they going to find you, Darren? Well, I'm going to be in Raleigh, North Carolina, July 25th through 28th. Me only. Wow. It's the Trexpert tour. You get Darren all to yourself. Yeah, right. And then we'll all be reuniting, and it feels so good, in San Jose, California, August 18th. Do you know the way? The I do I know, know the way, way to San Jose. And maybe we'll go up north to look for the nuclear vessels while we're there. Well, and we're bringing it on all home in Columbus, Ohio, December 6th to the 8th. So if you want to know what guests will be joining us and how to get tickets, go to galaxycon.com, comic-con.org, or trexpressplus.com. You'll be glad you did. We'll see you around the galaxy. Join us. Next year. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman. And this is Ashley Miller. And we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And uh, today we're joined by Edward Gross, co-author of The 50-Year Mission, author of the fabulous new book about uh, Superman called Superman, what's it called? Voices from Krypton. <laughs> Voices from Krypton. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Superman, um, what's it called? Is a terrible title, but Voices yeah. from Krypton is great. Thanks. Is, or, or, or as Marlon Brando says, Voices from Krypton. Krypton. Um, so, and, and author of this insidious plot. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we're we're here today um, to uh, remember the great Tracy Torme. Tracy passed away on January. Fourth at 64 years of age, he um, 
died of complications from diabetes. Uh, and uh, Ed and I have spent a lot of time with Tracy over the years. We're both pretty good friends with him. And this came as a shock. Um, and we thought it would be some, it would be worth remembering and talking about him because there was a time where Tracy was the heir apparent to Star Trek The Next Generation. Right. And Tracy was also one of the most, um, he was the most candid. You know, a lot of people, you know, now it's like you try talking to somebody and they're sitting in the same room as the publicist and, you know, they can't tell you anything more than the fact that uh, uh, Star Trek is a show with trekking in it and we're very proud of it and it's great and everyone's brilliant and we love everyone and the experience is amazing. And we love it. And it's amazing. Did I mention it was amazing? We're That's proud of everyone do. involved. But, uh, <laughs> so proud. But, back, <laughs> but back in the day, well, I love this story. Tell, tell me how you first, because you were writing for Starlog at the time, and you were doing some books about Next Gen. How did you first get a hold of Tracy Tormain? Tell us a little bit about what you remember about uh, Tracy. Well, it was a time when... You could call 411 and get information from, from the operator. And it's how I got in touch with Chris Columbus. It's how I got in touch with Joss Whedon. And it's how I got in touch with Tracy Torme. Somehow Tracy's number was in the book. Mm -hmm. And I just called him cold, uh, asked him, you know, told him who, what I was doing, who I was. We seemed to strike it off right away. And we probably that moment spent at least an hour or so talking. And then there were a series of conversations about it. Uh, which really provided great insight into those early days of Star Trek Next Generation. Yeah, you know, yeah. It was just a lot of fun being able to reach out and reach out and touch someone, so to speak. I, 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 first, I, first, um, I first met Tor uh, Tracy when I was starting to write for Cinefantastic. And, you know, I sort of made my bones uh, on um, covering the writer's uh, room disaster on Next Gen. And so I was trying to talk to anybody who talked to me at the time um, you know, it was my big break writing for Cinefantastic about uh, all the problems they were having with the revolving door. Uh, not the Royale revolving door, the revolving door <laughs> of the writer's room. And um, I met Tracy. Um, Tracy, of course, had been um, a writer on SCTV and Saturday Night Live in the 82-83 season. That's where he met Joe Piscopo. Interesting piece of trivia. Wow. Um, he had written in 1988 uh, the B-movie horror film Spellbinder. Um, and, uh, he, uh, he's also, as you may know, I mean, I don't know how many of our listeners even know who this is anymore. He's the son of Mel Torme, uh, the crooner. Boys, boys, the, yeah. And, and, uh, I'll never forget. I, I, you know, Tracy used to have these parties at his house and, uh, actually at Mel's house, not at his house, at his dad's right. house. And so, um, <laughs> I remember one time going to Tracy's house and um, Mel Torme opens the door and goes, I guess you're here for uh, for Tracy. And I'm like, wow. yeah. And he says, oh, come on in. <laughs> and he was just like, <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, it's Mel Torme. And, did he start uh, scat singing for you? No, he, he did not. He did not. Um, That's too bad. But it's funny because when I interviewed um, Tracy about the, the, you know, the problems on the show at the time, um, and by then it was like Tracy was kind of, I think, on his his way out. Um, I ended up, you know, it doesn't always happen, nor should it with 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 people. But he was leaving the show, so it wasn't really a conflict of interest. 
we ended up becoming, you know, really good friends. I mean, he used to have me over to watch uh, uh, football games, which I had no interest in. Um, but uh, we play, you know, these volleyball games on the weekend, which is water volleyball. And um, I was at his wedding and uh, he was a really interesting character. Uh, you know, I'd lost touch for with him for a while. When Ed and I were writing 50 Year Mission, uh, I was trying to get in touch with him. It was very difficult because he does, it didn't use email or text. You had to call him on his landline. So I finally got a hold of him. And, and then um, I remember when I was going to interview him, he's like, oh, um, I don't drive. So <laughs> could you come and pick me up? So I actually went and picked Tracy up, and he had a cane at the time. Um, and uh, we went to this deli, uh, the, the uh, Beverly Glen Deli, which was near his yeah. house where he lived at the time. And, uh, and uh, spent a couple of hours, uh, you know, just sort of walking down memory lane. Some stories he had told me before, some were all new. Um, and we had a great time reconnecting. Um, you know, it was funny because the first time I was ever in Vancouver was uh, when he was the creator and showrunner of Sliders, who was shooting a pilot for Fox. Um, and he, he said, hey, why don't you hop on a plane and come up and hang out on set? And I'd never been to, to, to Canada and uh, Vancouver at the time. I've shot things since then. Uh, I've been up there a couple of times, but uh, I'd never been there. So, you know, flew up and it was great because it was um, it was Jerry O'Connell, who I knew from Stand By Me, who could have been nicer. Um, it was, uh, uh, you know, John Reese davies It was like, right. that was so cool. I mean, it was like, oh my God, it's John Reese davies It's like, from, it's Salah from Raise the Lost Ark. And then uh, Sabrina Lloyd, who we know our friend Dan Weber had a huge crush on, which is never, you know. Um, and uh, and then there was also, um, uh, oh God, what was his name? The guy who played the, the the band. It was like in Streets of Fire. He had the uh, Willem Dafoe. No, anyway, <laughs> Michael Pare. Michael Pare. It was so interesting. If you remember, you remember the premise of Sliders. Yes, would, it's the show yeah, about the little hamburgers. The little hamburgers stack yeah. on the plate. <laughs> the slider verse. Slider oh, yeah, John Reed like runs the kitchen, and uh, it, Jerry O'Connell is your sir. It's great. Which reminds me, before we go too off track, Ed Gross, do uh -oh. you remember the White Castle commercials, the Star Trek White Castle commercials on WPIX back in New York, back in 74, 75? Oh, wow. Uh, I'd be lying if I said yes, I don't. Okay. I'm uh, sorry. Apparently only Darren, no. I, I can't even say, laugh and say, oh, only Darren does, because I do remember them now. It took a while, but it came back to me. It was this one commercial that I only remember seeing on Saturday morning with Wonderama. <laughs> and, and it was this model of the, of the Enterprise. It was an AMT model, spray-painted silver, mm -hmm. moving toward this space station. Yeah. That had a White Castle sign on it, and the Enterprise yeah. ordered 400 White Castles. <laughs> and that was the commercial. That's yeah. the space station I want to go to. Yeah, um, that's WNEW, not WPIX. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. WNEW yeah. Channel Five. Yeah. Absolutely. Let yeah. me tell you. You know, I know because I was on Wonderama. You know, I was on Wonderama. Did you get a Lenders Bagelette necklace? I did. That had my name on it, and, <laughs> and I, I, I had that for for decades. I had that hanging oh on my, my bookshelf. Not only did I have the lender's bagel, I bagel won Ant. the leap. It's a little one. Yeah, I know. I know. I won. <laughs> I won the leapfrog competition. Oh my god! Nice. I won. I won. I won. And uh, no, you're a winner. 
and it was great because they gave us they gave us this this um like this really cool like I, I forget what it was like you could store your like your toys like a toy bin they gave us full size lenders bagels that you could make in your mm -hmm. toaster oven um wow. they gave us a whole bunch of stuff and uh and it was <laughs> it was it was great. I remember the girl who I did the leapfrog thing. She was cute. And uh, it was it, you, Bob come McAllister. Come over to my lily pad. I remember oh, Bob my. McAllister was a bit of a jerk, though. That's but, uh, everything I've ever heard was that Bob McAllister was a jerk. Yeah, yeah. But um, <laughs> but but it was awesome. But, you know, a couple of weeks ago, Ed, Darren mentioned uh, great pop culture moments and mentioned this, this commercial. And yeah. it's funny because I, for the life of me, couldn't remember it. And then suddenly it just came to me one day. I'm like, I remember that commercial. And then a couple of our listeners started saying, yeah, I remember. But it hasn't shown up on YouTube. It's no nowhere. one has it. It's like it never existed. But Is you're it describing like it, and suddenly I feel like I've seen it. So it's so weird. But anyway. Because you probably did. But it only probably aired a couple of times. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So yeah. people It was a local commercial. Yeah. Total. It was a local New York area, tri-state area commercial mm -hmm. for White Castle. But okay, so anyway. um, let's let's talk about let's. We're here for Tracy. Yes. Um, although I'm sure he would appreciate us going off on a tangent because he was a huge Star Trek fan. But you know, the funny thing about it was he actually had no interest in writing for Star Trek. He really was hoping to write for the new Twilight Zone because mm. he was a huge fan of Twilight Zone, The Outer Limits. And the prisoner; those were his three, wow. his big three. You know, he loves Star Trek too, and yeah. it was interesting because <laughs> I'm trying to remember. He had an episode that he loved that I was like, he, he would always sing the praises of. He says, "I don't get why nobody likes this episode." And I'm trying to remember what it was. I think it's "Is There in Truth No Beauty," mm -hmm. and he also liked "Return to Tomorrow." I remember he was a big Diana Muldaur fan. Well, there because you go. Who isn't? He was yeah. the guy. I could tell the story Lots now. Of people. He, he, he was the guy. Well, called, well, I mean, he, he called me. I remember he called me. He said, "Mark, I, I should be telling you this, but they're getting rid of Gates and they're bringing in." Well, I can't tell you. I said, "Come on, you can tell me." He goes, "Diana Muldaur. I love Diana Muldaur. I can't wait to write for her." <laughs> wow! Wow! <laughs> it was real hard getting that out of him. And, like, <laughs> I bet. Sounds like he's a tough nut to crack, man. And he says, you That's know, I love your, our... <laughs> yeah. Your goes, investigative you know, journalist abilities. I love those episodes. I love those episodes with Diana Muldaur, Mark. This is going to be so great. Wow. <laughs> was he Was he going to write an episode of her falling down a turbo lift shaft? No. no. By the oh, way, no. I I worked with the writers who... Uh, who created that that moment and uh i think that's like one of those things where if you do that yeah exactly um you just dine on out you just dine out on that for the rest of your your life really like, yeah I, i'm the one who dropped rosalind shays down a goddamn elevator shaft. <laughs> what a way to go man what a way to wow. go i remember watching that it was just like what <laughs> and then captain picard nearly repeated that yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. it was good yeah. yeah you know the irony was that he was kind of ron moore before ron moore he was like he was like the golden child at Star Trek. The funny thing is he hated Ron Moore, and I think Ron Moore hated him uh, because they both worked on Carnival. And I don't remember the story, but I remember him telling me about how how um, he really didn't like Ron Moore. Either he replaced Ron Moore or Ron Moore replaced him on Carnival. I don't remember wow. the story. But, boy, there was no love lost between the two of them. 
Um, you, you know, Tracy, tr the thing about Tracy is when you, if you track Tracy from the beginning of his time on the show to when he left, he came in with such like wide eyed amazement when Roddenberry was taking around the Paramount lot on his golf cart mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. all these stories and so excited about it. And you, from the f multiple conversations, you listened as the joy got beat out of him, basically. Oh my goodness. Yes. You could hear it every time you talked to him. He was so excited because he first, he got involved with Star Trek when they were, um, they hadn't started shooting yet. They were building the sets and he was there. I forget he was, Paramount liked him and they were looking at him for Twilight Zone, the new Twilight Zone. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he somehow he got brought into Star Trek and he pitched Bob Lewin. Really, Lewin was the guy that shepherded me the whole time through that. And they liked the idea so they and they didn't like what they had previously so they pretty much left me alone to go off and write haven uh for them and it was really my intention that was just going to be it i was just going to do the one thing and I, I really was inspired uh well one thing i should tell you that you might find interesting was that uh when i one of the first meetings that i went in on uh walter koenig was brought in that same day for some reason so they decided to give me and him a tour of what was going on at the show. And I had recently read the Bible, and now literally they were building the bridge. And I was literally being led through the, you know, the, the sets. Here's the bridge. They were casting at the time. I remember they made a big decision to sort of flip-flop the Tasha Yar character right, was originally um, Macha Camacho right, or something right. like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it, what really, and so Koenig and I were led all around and shown everything, and what really made a big impression on me was I had absolutely no desire to get back into television. I was deeply into trying to make movies at the time. That was my thing. And... I have to admit, after having read the Bible and then actually being there to see how the show was piece by piece being put together, that was interesting to me. Mm -hmm. That opened a new door for me. I thought, well, you know what? This is this would be fascinating to create something and then watch it come to life, as opposed to doing a movie. Mm -hmm. uh, and it opened up my mind to possibly one day you know, getting back in television and doing this again. I think it was that day that they showed me around. Bob Lewin had been a producer on The Paper Chase and St. Elsewhere and really talented, older writer. And he picked, pitched him uh, an addiction story for Star Trek, which Bob really responded to. We found out later why that was, didn't we, Ed? Yeah, yeah his son was uh, heavily addicted uh, to drugs and lost his life too, right? Didn't he, Mark? No, his daughter did. His son. His daughter did. I'm so sorry. His son actually went to rehab right. and bounced back. But he felt, and and it wasn't symbiosis, but it was something that he really responded to. So he told Roddenberry that Gene should, this guy he thought had something. He should he should meet him. And so um, Tracy is in Santa Barbara with his fiance, and he gets a call saying, "Oh, Gene's in town. Gene's in town." Um, he'd like to meet with you. It's like when today, so he hops in the car and 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 zooms to Paramount. And for those of you 
who don't know how far Santa Barbara is from Los Angeles. It's, you know, it's two and a half hour without traffic. It's two and a half hours with traffic. It's a lot more uh, from, from Los Angeles. So he comes, he comes, he meets with Roddenberry. Roddenberry loved him. Really, it was because uh, I was set to do a Twilight Zone. And I'd always wanted to do a Twilight Zone and Outer Limits and Star Trek. I mean, I, those in The Prisoner, those would have been my big four. So I was all set to do a Twilight Zone. I'd met with them. I picked an old episode that I was going to remake. And uh, then it got canceled. And very shortly after that, they approached me and said, they're bringing Star Trek back. And I said, you're kidding, really? And they said, yeah, and they would like to send you a Bible. So I don't know exactly how all that came down, but they sent me a Bible uh, very, very early on. And I read the Bible closely and thought there were, you know, a lot of interesting things in it. So I went in for a meeting with Bob Lewin. And he was such a gentleman, he was such a great guy. I mean, so easy to talk to. And we just really hit it off. He liked me right off the bat. And he said, uh, um, I had gone in with a... Uh, story about addiction addiction inside the Federation uh, and I pitched it to Lou and he liked it and he said would you be willing to come back and tell this to Gene and I said sure so a few weeks later or something I was in Santa Barbara with my fiance at the time and I was actually working on something else when word came out Roddenberry's in town in LA he would like to meet with you today can you just drive in and meet with them so i literally left my fiance behind jumped in my car drove back down to la and walked in and there was gene and i walked in to meet with gene and i remember uh thinking how tall he was and how sort of intimidating he was he had a bit of an intimidating air about him very first thing that i remember him saying to me so what exactly is it that you want to do with my Star Trek? <laughs> I think that was really, like, the first thing he said to me. And so I was like, oh, geez, I better not misstep here and say the wrong words. So I, I pitched my uh, addiction show, and he said, well, I really don't want to open that can of worms of addiction but uh, I like the way you think, and you know, maybe if if we have an opening somewhere and something, the right thing comes along, then would you be interested in maybe doing a freelance for us? I said, yeah, if the right right thing happens, sure, because that's really all I was intending to do in the first place. So again, to make a long story short, uh, they had a show that they were really, really struggling with. It was originally called Love Beyond Time and Space. Uh, the writer was just really not getting it, and. They weren't sure whether it was a comedy or whether it was a straightforward show and they really didn't know what they wanted to do, but they showed it to me and sort of said, you have carte blanche. If you have a take on this, um, we'd love to hear it. So I just kind of remember focusing on turning it into more of a comedy. And also I knew that they had were looking for something to do with Majel. And um, so I created the Luaxana Troy character for Majel and sort of inserted her into the sort of bare bones of the story that they were working on. And that became Haven. And that, that ended up being the first one that I did. Roddenberry loved him. And he has 
all through his relationship, Roddenberry was his guardian angel and sort of protected him. And 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 he had great Gene Roddenberry stories, didn't he, Ed? Oh my God, yeah. I mean, especially one we can't, we shouldn't talk about. Well, I no, no. Oh, we're going to talk about. It. We'll get. There. Oh, we are we'll going to talk there. about. It. Okay. I don't, I don't want to get to that story yet. But he would take him around on a golf cart around the studio and just talk, tell him stories about making the original Star Trek. And it's kind of like the the Roddenberry we heard about when we interviewed Alan Spencer. You know, mm. he was really warm and 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 nostalgic, and would also warn him about studio executives, and he'd tell you know. Um, Tracy, one day you're going to have your own show, and this is what you need to know. And so it's, it's kind of like Jimmy Doohan in the Ben Stiller show. It kind of is. <laughs> really became Scotty. So basically, everyone really liked Tracy. Funny, Tracy wanted to do features at the time. He was a big UFO nut, super yeah. UFO nut. And he says the only time Gene Roddenberry ever got mad at him was when he told uh, Gene. Uh, you know, was talking about UFOs, and Gene was like, "You know, that's nonsense. I, I can't believe you believe that stuff." And they got into a whole fight about mm. UFOs and extraterrestrials, which is ironic, given <laughs> you know. Well, because that's what the nine told Gene to say. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, many many golf cart rides. He would call me and tell me to meet him in his golf cart out in front of the building, and I would go meet him, and he'd be waiting for me in the golf cart. He would be driving, and we'd be driving from one end of the studio to the other to the uh, shooting stage, and he would take these very long, meandering drives. He would not drive the shortest way possible. He would sort of go sort of the back roads of a lot, waving at people he knew, saying hi to the security guards um, and he used these times to talk to me about a number of things I mean personal things professional things great stories about the old Trek stories about Shatner stories about Majel stories about his, pre his ex-wife his divorces, his relationships with women. Uh, told me he thought that I would be running my own show one day and there were things that I needed to know and things I needed to know about how to work with the network executives, how sometimes they will give you the stupidest notes in the history of the world and you have to choose when to nod your head and act like saying, well, that's kind of interesting and then hope that it never comes up again and they wanted Spock off of the original show until Gene came up with the idea of a space cigarette that had green smoke and they loved that and he decided he thought hope they would just forget about it which they did so he never used it but he felt that had saved Spock from being eliminated from the show um, just a whole huge number of anecdotes and stories and uh and, you know, sometimes he was very charming, easygoing, friendly. Sometimes he was irascible, short-tempered. I think sometimes he was drinking. Uh, sometimes his health wasn't very good. Very mercurial, very all over the map at that stage. I think largely because of his health. Uh, one day he had a very stern I, I got a very stern 
word that he wanted to see me in his office immediately. I went down to his office and very, you know, same kind of look on his face that he'd had when I first met him. And he said, what do you plan to do with my Star Trek? And I knew I was kind of in trouble. And he started the conversation by saying, well, friend, <laughs> whenever he called you friend, it was like, uh-oh. And uh, he was very, very, very upset that he had heard I was going to be making a movie about Travis Walton. And I was surprised he even knew who Travis Walton was. And he went into a very angry tirade, don't you know... UFOs are nothing but bullshit. They are the biggest bullshit in the world. There's nothing to them. They're never seen by reliable witnesses. They're never seen by astronomers. They're never seen by policemen. They're never seen by pilots. They're only seen by drunken farmers in Nebraska at three in the morning. And that should tell you all you need to know. And why in the world would you want to bring publicity to someone like this, who's obviously just out to get publicity and so I, you know, very quietly and calmly tried to tell him that I knew a lot about the subject and that he was, respectfully, he was wrong, that both, most of the things he had said are just not accurate. But, you know, I found out later that he was very good friends with um, Isaac Asimov and Ray Bradbury, who were very anti-UFO. And Sagan, who I worked with, was very anti-UFO. Uh, Would you work with Nick or Carl? Uh, Carl. I worked with Nick a little bit, but Carl on uh, contact. Oh, okay, right. Yeah. And um, they all said the same things, and they were all <laughs> equally wrong, which was interesting. I mean, they just didn't really understand the subject, and they led to believe the fact of the matter is 95% of UFO cases are complete bullshit. It's the 5% that they don't have the slightest explanation for, and they haven't been able to. But most people don't know that. And especially the journalistic world and the scientific world are completely ignorant about the subject. It's really kind of amazing. So, anyway, he was very upset about that. It was really interesting. And a lot of Star Trek people that have heard about that story over the years refused to believe me. They just don't believe that Roddenberry could have been that anti-UFO. But he really was. Um, but I did get very close with him. I was very grateful for all of his advice. It, it came in very handy for me over the years. It was very similar to Joe Stefano. They both came from very much the same place. They both really hated the process they had to go through where they constantly had to answer to people above them that they felt didn't know half of what they knew about writing. Age-old thing, everybody feels that way. But they both felt very strongly. I don't know if this would be surprising to anybody, but these are things that I remember. Extreme self-confidence um, in his own thinking process. Um, one of those guys who really believed that when he thought of an idea and was going to add it to someone else's show or something, you know, it was worth its weight in gold. He never lacked for that kind of confidence. Always felt that any things that had sort of gone wrong with the original Trek were all the responsibility of the idiots that were above him. I don't know. 
Um, I think that his politics were not fully understood by people because they were very all over the map again. He was very conservative on some things, and yet his sort of overall view of the future is pretty liberal view. I think that was confusing to some people. He was, he, when you would have personal conversations with him, especially if he'd been drinking at all, there would be a very, a almost draconian conservative side to him. Like you could see how he would be maybe very a hawkish on some things. And it was hard to get a handle on him. Um, powerful temper. Um, he'd literally go, his whole face would go red when he'd get angry. He definitely had that gin blossom thing going on. Yeah. He had a very powerful temper. That He showed me that, that Travis Walton day. He was mad. He was pissed. Yeah, he was pissed. Now, he couldn't believe that I was going to waste my time and that I would be promoting something like that. And, it, and it's funny because, of course, you know, uh, Tracy ended up doing for Paramount um, the movie uh, Fire in the Sky. Fire in the Sky, yeah. uh, um, Which Rob Lieberman directed, which I don't love the movie, but it has this great abduction sequence at the end that's terrific. It has a, the best use of uh, latex sheets in movie history. Yes. Well. <laughs> so so they gave him they they liked his pitch but they were Gene didn't want to do an addiction story probably because uh going back to city on the edge of forever um so they gave him this script um which was called um I'm trying to remember what it was called it was uh it was what ultimately became the episode Haven next time on Star Trek the Next Generation Counselor Troy faces a prearranged marriage. Isn't this simply beautiful? She's torn between love and leaving the Enterprise. A starship has its customs just as we do. But when the groom risks his life to help a plague-infested ship... My son, surrounded by those horrible lepers... He threatens to destroy their future on Star Trek The Next Generation. Um, love and Time and Space, I think it was something like yeah. that. That's it. Uh, yeah, I think I think that was it. Uh, and so they gave him. Uh, the, yeah, it was called. Uh, it was called Love Beyond Time and Space. All right, I by a writer right. named uh, Lan O'Coon. and uh, it was basically it was That's a, a Star Wars name. And it was interesting because it was about um, an uh, an arranged marriage, which is something that Marina had actually dealt with in her life. You know, but she's Greek, mm-hmm. and um, and uh, so. They didn't know what to do with it. There was something they liked. I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that, you know, they were looking at Loxana for Majel, and Majel was giving Gene a lot of agita about when is she going to get something to do on the show. So um, he wrote, and everyone really liked it. And if you remember, what's interesting is even though it didn't air third, it was the third episode they filmed. And it you could argue it's the first half-decent episode of Next Gen. You know, after Farpoint and Naked Now. You know, Haven at the time, look, in retrospect, it's not a great episode, but it had glimmers, right? It had moments. And uh, so based on that, they gave him another script, and they knew they wanted to do a holodex, uh, holodex story, which is when 
Tracy came up with the idea for the big goodbye, which ended up winning them a Peabody Award. Next time on Star Trek The Next Generation. Ready for San Francisco, Mr. Whalen? Captain Picard visits the holodeck for an adventure to the past. Something's gone wrong. Everyone inside could vanish. A mysterious malfunction threatens their journey. This is not a game. Give me the gun. Trapping them in a real-life murder mystery. Shall I kill him? No. Kill the woman. On Star Trek The Next Generation. I thought that was that. I thought it was over, and uh, then um, they came back to me. I was kind of surprised and asked me if I would do a second one. And I'd been interested from the Bible about the holiday. And I'd realized that they really hadn't done anything with that yet. And I thought that was really a great, you know, very rich idea. And that's where um, the big goodbye came from. Um, Now, that was basically that I'm a huge, huge Raymond Chandler fan and a big film noir fan. And um, I thought it would really be fun to do a very classic film noir, Raymond Chandler type of story. And, of course, The Big Goodbye is a combination of The Big Sleep and The Long Goodbye. Well, there's a lot of that in it, but the title... The title was from those two things, yeah. But you're right, there was a lot of Maltese Falcon in the story. And um, that was a very, very magical script for me. For the, The main reason was it was very easy to write. It went through very few changes. It was messed with almost not at all by anybody. They left it alone. Um... And um, it won a Peabody Award. Yeah, and, and, and that, that was really big news because uh, you don't get nominated for a Peabody and then go in and see if you have a chance to win. Literally, I remember uh, Susan um, Sackett. Sackett calling me one morning in my office saying, Oh my God, I have the most incredible news for you. Your show just won a Peabody Award. It's the only one in science fiction history or, you know, something like that. Right, right. And, uh, it was just, you know, absolutely out of nowhere. I mean, I still, to this day, I mean, I'm grateful for it, but I have no idea why uh, it, it happened. Um, and then um, Gene and Majel and Rick Berman and I, and it seems like there was somebody... Oh, and the director, Joseph Scanlon, who I also worked with on Sliders down the road, um, we all flew to New York and spent the weekend in New York and got and I was given the award had to wear a tuxedo and all that stuff. So it was it was considered a big deal at the time because especially, I remember the show was really struggling at the time. It was actually not getting a lot of great uh, response for a lot of reasons. And a lot of word had gotten around about a lot of the turmoil on the show. And it was a big shot in the arm for the show to get the Peabody Award. It sort of seemed to justify the, the next generation. So that was a really wonderful thing. And... And the next, um, I can't, I can think of very, very few uh, scripts that I've ever worked on that were so easy to do and so uh, left alone. I mean, there were almost no changes made to it. Very few things in it that I was not happy with. Uh, I remember the uh, depiction of the alien race called the Harada. Right. I wasn't real thrilled with. It's sort of, they did like an 
Alvin and the Chipmunks kind of uh, voice right. on the Harada, right, right. and I remember cringing a little bit. <laughs> and, and originally, you were supposed to see the Harada, and then it was a budgetary thing where they they just ended up being heard and not seen. That was the one thing that I was uh, a little disappointed in. Other than that, um, I was really happy with it. It was the whole experience was great. I was. Uh, treated very well, and it changed everything for me because all of a sudden, after the big goodbye, they basically um, immediately invited me back to do a third one. Uh, I think they paid me really, really well to do the third one, and they gave me a lot of carte blanche on the third one. They let me initially, now that's not what, right, right. <laughs> but initially. They were sort of again letting me do what I wanted to do and have total freedom. And I, I already, even at that young age, knew that you know in this business you're constantly fighting to protect your work. I mean that's why I became a producer in the first place was just to protect my writing, um, which was a huge deal at the time. Because remember, the show was only in first run syndication, so it, it had it got very little respect. Yeah. And for them to get a Peabody Award was a huge deal, and. Um, you know, they also had Lawrence Tierney, who was in these great um, noir movies like uh, Born to Kill and later on in Reservoir Dogs. And, um, uh, you know, and obviously the Dixon Hill character, which he originally called Dixon Steel, which was based on Humphrey Bogart's character in A Lonely Place. And a um, porn actor. Yeah, I was going to say Dixon uh, right? <laughs> uh, Well, well I, that's, that's the character in, uh, in, um, in A Lonely Place, the Humphrey Bogart character. Um, and he wrote the big goodbye, and that but the big goodbye was what really uh, got people excited about Tracy. You know, um, it's it's and it's it's great. Obviously, that character has been so enduring. I mean, you guys are fans of the big goodbye, right? Oh yeah, man, I love that episode. That was like, um, it's funny because I'm I want to wrap back a little bit to what you said about about Haven, and if you think about kind of where that episode showed up, I mean, you've got the two part pilot, which is not good. Um, and then you've got the the naked now, which is right. which is an off concept episode for a show that hadn't established itself yet. So it's off concept for something that doesn't have a concept yet. So Haven is probably the first time that like the that the show really settled down and said, okay, this is this is what we are. This is how we're going to approach our problem mm-hmm. of the week and integrate our, our characters and and all that. And you're right, it's decent. Like it's 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 not like um, it's 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 uh it's not you know. Home it's not awful. It's not awful. It's like it. It just it. It kind of sets the the tone a little bit. Certainly better than Code of Honor. Um, but I really like the Big Goodbye. I was like that was really the first time that I felt um, in uh, in the next generation a glimmer of actual human emotions. That and like we always talk about one one zero zero one and Heart of Glory and Heart, and Heart of, Glory. of Glory. Yes, it was like yeah. one of those few like instances of like wow, there's like there's something interesting going on here and there's like there's something that feels like there's drama that's happening um and i like the way that it that it ended it's like i don't know how the hell the holographic characters walked off the holodeck i don't care because it worked um but yeah it was i i would agree i think that was the first time that the next generation kind of really didn't just establish its own format as a star trek show it also kind of staked out territory um that we hadn't that was unique to the next generation at that point. That's that's very funny because I, you know, I'm going to be the odd man out again. Uh, I hate that episode. 
Wow. I really hate it because because it seems it's completely against the character of Jean-Luc Picard. It, Which was it, what it, in season one? <laughs> Surrendering look, the ship at all times and in all places. Even, but uh, even as right. it's established later, it doesn't fit. It's a it's a puzzle piece that has an extra bit that doesn't that doesn't fit with that character. And it and the the, the problem for me was that um, Picard and Patrick Stewart uh, was so uncomfortable and unfitting in that environment that he couldn't possibly have been a fan of this stuff. It just, it just felt really forced and really clunky to me. Just I me personally. I, I mean, in fact, I know that I don't agree. The, um, <laughs> because I, I'll, what I kind of appreciated about it was that it was, it was a, it was a side and an interest that you, you wouldn't expect right that it's and people are like that people like sure people surprise you people like they show us colors that we haven't seen before and i think like it 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 colored in something very interesting um for him that that was where his head went right it wasn't like the obvious which would have been sherlock holmes no admittedly when they went down the sherlock holmes route they got moriarty out of it which was really a miracle of casting more than it was a miracle of writing yep um but i liked that this was this was the kind of story that appealed to him that it wasn't oh we have this british actor so let's kind of do something that's sort of exactly what you would expect okay cool i dig i grooved i'm big i'm glad you also, did i'm sorry no no i, I just said i'm glad you enjoyed it i wish i could have <laughs> shared that <laughs> you, you guys mentioned some of the other episodes too of the season like code of honor and things like that but big guy big goodbye for me was a, like a sigh of relief like we're not just ripping off the original star trek that the that the uh, character characterizations the the storylines everything else just felt so much like repeats of everything we'd seen already. This, at least to me, felt fresh. This felt like okay. You didn't feel like it was a, a, a echoes of a piece of the action. I mean, Correct. there's echoes of it, sure, it didn't. Uh, but not not to the point where I feel like. You, you know, like like Q, although Q became its own thing, is rip off of Trilene and and all these other things were just like, oh my God, we've seen this already and we've been re- watching reruns of it for decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it, it felt like even if there are echoes of certain things, it nonetheless wasn't feeling like a rip off of what had come before. Like we mm-hmm. have no fresh ideas, so we're just going to put a new coat of paint on this old one. Right, because the thing that made that, made that different was this, right? So let's go to a piece of the action. That is 100% um, very much a uh, one of those those episodes where the crew goes to a world where society looks like something from our society. We saw that again and again and again. That's not what the big goodbye is. The big right. goodbye, they don't even understand that our characters, that our heroes um, are part of something else. It's not about that 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 clash of culture. That's that's not what it is. Um, it's it is it's a it's a really just sort of this existential meditation, which is very strange but kind of cool uh, for a for a hard boiled mystery. It's it's interests lie in a different place. Certainly, like you know, there are um, there are facets of like of the costuming, the time, sort of some of the, like the little the little dialogue riffs, but that's not where the it's a. It's not a comedy, even though I think it's it's funny at times. Um, and B. It's not. It's not a fish out of water story. 
by any stretch of the imagination, which is what a piece of the action is, right? I mean, you get right down to like driving the car. I mean, just we don't have that. Well, for the, every other character yeah. but Picard, it is a fish out of water story. I mean, for every other Enterprise character. But it's not about, uh, it's, it is, it's not about being inside of a, a culture on a world where there is a, a mission that involves that, right? It's like, they're not in yeah. any way the same story. Well, no, I'm not saying they're the same story. I'm saying they're the same rapping. Boil. Well, I got to say, this is really funny <laughs> conversation because, uh, Ashley, something you said at the very beginning of this uh, riff was, um, you said they were always surrendering. That was the thing Tracy used to complain about. Yep. He would go on yep. a rant and talk about, I understand, they're always, Captain Picard's always surrendering. He's like, this show is never going to be as good as the original. It's just such a mess. He goes, it's not as interesting. He's, you know, and then he, and he had that great quote, one of my favorite quotes. He said, yeah, maybe some people like Next Step more than the original. He said, but, you know, to some people, the Beatles are just uh, Paul McCartney's band before Wings. Which I, I, I <laughs> that was another thing that Tracy loved. Tracy loved the Beatles. Oh, okay. No, the Beatles. And uh, so he always, he could never understand. Even, even when I talked to him a couple of years ago, he's like, it seems like Next Generation is more popular than TOS now. I don't get it. <laughs> and, uh, and it's so funny because obviously he worked on it. And um, like you guys, I really like The Big Goodbye. I'm a huge film noir fan, first of all, foremost. But uh, I think it was, you know, it was great. Unfortunately, you know, it has, there, there are two things. You know, he's kind of uses this distraction because he wants to basically procrastinate on his final exam. He's supposed to communicate with this alien species. Yeah. So he's like, okay, well, I'm going to go on the holodeck uh, because yeah. I, I don't want to study. <laughs> you yeah. know, and Troy is encouraging him to do that. And, uh, and uh, you know, and then, of course, you know, we, we, we've, we've talked about this. Then there's the old holodeck malfunction story. And... Which, by the, the way, fact, at that point, there wasn't such a thing as a holodeck well, malfunction yeah, story. Yeah, it's right. the new holodeck malfunction story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's right. And then, um, you know, and Wesley, of course, is, is a vital. And he hated that, you know, just that oh he, God, said, he said at that point, he thought I, I thought Wesley was going to be off the show before they changed doctors. He said, if any, if they said, who's going to be leaving the show? I thought it was going to be Wesley. He said, I didn't now, think. Imagine I didn't, if my, they'd recast uh, Diana Muldaur as Wesley. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Uh, uh, <laughs> And it's interesting because at the time, Haven um, uh, was directed uh, by um, Richard Compton, who directed the uh, Babylon 5 pilot. He also directed the Sliders pilot. Um, And uh, he he did several episodes of Sliders. So, you know, Tracy was already, you know, meeting the people that would become part of his TV family as he went on and did, you know, other shows and other, other projects. So he did the big goodbye. Was very well received. He had a lot of goodwill because, you know, from the studio, from Gene, from everybody. Because and and they barely touched the script, which was not common at the time. Gene was rewriting everything, as was Gene's lawyer. Um, so everything was getting rewritten. A big goodbye was barely touched. So um, basically, he did one more script at the third season, which is one of the more controversial scripts. I love it. Um, you know, whatever his flaws are. And of course, I'm talking about conspiracy. Next time on an all new episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. Don't trust anyone. Remember that, Jean Luc. Sabotage strikes the highest ranks of the Starfleet Command. 
Break into security. Emergency. And threatens the future of the entire Federation. What is that? But do evil parasites hold the key to this deadly conspiracy? He'll be one of us soon. Find out on Star Trek The Next Generation. Tonight at 7 on KPTV 12. Uh, I, I'm conspiracy is um, is such a unique episode, even to this day. Yeah. In the history of Star Trek, how did it happen? Well, that I mean, was no accident. That was no accident, Mark. I'm glad that you noticed that. Okay, here's what it was. I felt that the biggest weakness of the show was that everybody liked everybody too much. Everybody got along all the time. I thought it was very. Uh, in need of some kind of conflict. One of my main arguments for that was that even the Klingon is a big lovable teddy bear. I mean, he's just like every you know everybody's favorite guy. And I thought the Klingon could have been a way of really creating conflict. So I had fairly recently seen the movie um, Seven Days in May. Rod Serling script, I believe, and uh, I decided to Frankenheimer do some, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I decided to do sort of a Star Trek version of Seven Days in May, and um, I wanted it to be controversial. I wanted it to have an unhappy ending. I wanted it to have a kind of a disturbing ending. I wanted it to be maybe left a little open ended, where maybe it's not a everything isn't all tied together at the end. Um, and do a real conspiratorial show inside the makings of Star Trek. I thought that would be really different. And when I was uh, like 18, I had seen a double feature, uh, Three Days of the Condor and The Parallax View together, right? Which to this day remain two of my all-time favorite movies. And I thought, well, why not do that kind of a show on Star Trek? Wouldn't that be kind of interesting? So I wrote a detailed treatment. And somewhere during this time period, the show had reached such a crisis place. Uh, it was either in danger of shutting down for a few days because there was no one running the ship or it actually did shut down for a few days, and I remember it cost a lot of money. And there was a big question of who is gonna really take the reins and sort of take over. And it sort of turned out that out of a, sort of what seemed to me at the time like a, how do I say this? Um, the lesser of all evils became Maurice Hurley. And very surprisingly, he went from the guy that couldn't complete the one script he was working on to being the king of the hill. And I was happy. I liked him. I thought that that was great. So first sign that anything was up was that one day he came into my office after I had submitted conspiracy. And he said, you know, I got to tell you, this is not Star Trek. It's just not Star Trek. He said, I don't know what it is you want to be writing with this, but it just doesn't work. It's not this show. It's some other show. I don't know what show it is, but I'm just letting you know now we're not doing this episode. And um, so you've got another episode to do. Start again. And we don't have a lot of time. So start, you know, do you have anything as like a backup? I said, well, no, I've really been zeroing in on doing this. And I was surprised. And he said, well, you, you've got to come up with something else because we're not doing this. So, 
it was maybe, maybe later that same day that I walk into the elevator and there's Maury. He's got kind of a strange look on his face. Well, you know, what can I say? Uh, I've been overruled. And I thought, oh, okay. He goes, uh, everybody else loves this thing. I don't get it. Everybody else loves it. So, uh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to do it. So go back and continue it. And he seemed not happy at all and seemed very uncomfortable. And uh, it was probably from that moment on that my relationship with him was never the same. Now, then uh, Bob Justman wrote a memo that he circulated amongst everybody saying that my first drafts of my stuff is much better than anybody else's final drafts. And that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. <laughs> and I, I bet, remember I bet. When, when I yeah, read have a lot of friends that <laughs> yeah, yeah. when I read that I thought, uh oh. It's not it's not good that already people know that Gene supposedly likes me and so now I thought thanks, oh Bob. Thanks Bob <laughs> and now uh, Hurley's been overruled on my yeah. so you know but on the other hand I was really excited to be able to do the episode. And what was funny was once the production staff got into reading the script as I developed the script, they got excited at doing more and more out there things in it. Like, I had had something in there about, you know, one of the ways you knew the aliens had taken someone over was they uh, were eating worms or something. And they came to me one day all excited and talked about a way they could do it and then the worms would be moving and they'd still be moving when they put them in their mouth. So they actually really got into all that kind of stuff and they got into the darker, the darker aspects of it, finally started to really appeal to everybody. When we did it, that was the talk, that, we, that this was going to be a recurring thing and that's why the ending is so open-ended. Right, right. So I was always surprised they didn't do it, although I hear that on some other form of Star Trek, they did bring back the worms, or they did bring back the parasites, or not something. Not in the actual show, not in no? the shows. No, I was told fact. they did. So, now what was really surprising to me was how much controversy the show actually did engender, because I thought it was mildly controversial. Different type of ending, darker tone. The exploding head. I think. Exploding head. People eating worms, and then the uh, the um, the fact that again it, you, the good guys didn't necessarily win at the end, and um, and opening a bit of a can of worms of you know the idea of something within the holiness of the Federation being questioned and all that. So I was expecting a little bit of that, but there was a lot of feedback. And a lot, I remember in the L.A. Times, there were several letters to the editors about that episode, and people were either saying, great, this is exactly what I wish Next Generation had been doing, kudos, and other people were very offended. I actually read a letter from a woman to the L.A. Times who was horrified that she couldn't watch the show with her family anymore because of all of these darker overtones, and she was... You know, it was terrible. And I actually wrote her and tried to explain why I did it because I actually felt kind of bad. She acted like her kids were traumatized or something. And I, so it was, it was, I did not think it was nearly as much of a 
controversy as a lot of other people did. And I think over the years it probably faded away and it wasn't considered a big deal. But when it did first come out, it actually did stir things up a lot, which is my intention. Now, conspiracy was it started with his idea to do seven days in May in the Federation. And what's interesting is his original pitch didn't involve the parasites. It was just, you know, oh, there's a conspiracy in Starfleet. Right. Which ultimately became exactly the Deep Space Nine episode later on. Um, but they said, no, we got, it got to be an external thing. So they came up with the idea of the invasion of the body snatchers. Our Starfleet people are, are, uh, are beyond uh, uh, being evil and, uh, and uh, de- uh, destructive. It has to be a, an external influence on them. <laughs> One of my biggest complaints about New Trek is everything is so Starfleet is corrupt and Starfleet is falling apart and... He may have been right. <laughs> he may have been right. But remember Balance in all things. This is the time when Maurice Hurley had sort of asserted himself. Well, I was very friendly with Maurice Hurley. He had uh, admitted to me that he had been struggling with this one script that he was supposed to write for a long, long time. And he had told me very, very frankly, he didn't get this show. It wasn't his cup of tea didn't really understand it. He said that very clearly to me. Uh, didn't really like science fiction. Didn't get Roddenberry. Roddenberry was, you know, confusing to him and sort of just didn't get it. He was kind of like, well, I know he's like a, you know, big, big wig in the business, but I kind of don't get it. I just don't get it. And he was already talking about leaving and this was, he was going to try to finish this one script and then split. But he was very close with, with uh, Lewin at the time. And they shared, I believe they shared an office where they had adjoining offices. And uh, because I liked Lewin so much, I liked Maury also. And, and uh, Maury had an interracial marriage, which I respected a lot. And I thought that was cool. And, and I liked his wife. And um, he was definitely one of the people on the show, I would say, along with Lewin and Herb Wright. Herb Wright was ex- extremely kind to me and had gone in and written memos and um, stuff that had been very supportive of me. So I liked Herb Wright a lot right off the bat. And at, at that point, even though I knew there was a tremendous amount of turmoil and I had witnessed some of it, I'd seen some screaming matches between David Gerald and Mazelich in the hallways. And, but I was, you know, immune to it all. It was, it so far for me had been just nothing but positive. And it's interesting because Originally, Tracy was pretty friendly with Maurice because Maury, who had done cop shows and stuff, had no idea how to write science fiction and no interest. But when it's sort of like he was the last man standing, became the de facto showrunner, um, you know, running basically Tracy. uh, But it heads with him, particularly when he said, oh, we're not doing your story. It's dopey. I don't want to do aliens taking over. And, you know, Torme was pissed and... um, Rick Berman liked it, who was the, 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 you know, the final decider, him and Gene, and, uh, they ended, and, and he overruled Hurley. So from that point on, Hurley had it out for Torme because he was pissed that he had been overruled on killing conspiracy. Um, there were various people that, for brief periods of time, I think were being thought about by the people at the very top as potential showrunners. And 
I think they soured on them, a lot of them in a very relatively short period of time. The word would just get around, it's not going to be so-and-so, not going to be Lewin. And they seem to settle on more. I honestly remember very clearly that he was considered the farthest thing from what they wanted for a while. I mean, he was like the guy that the running joke was he can't get a script done. Maybe he was the most, um, the one that Berman felt he could work the best with out of all the possibilities. I think it was probably the fact that Berman made a very calculated decision that this was the person that he would have the least amount of problems working with. He didn't want somebody who was a creative auteur who had a vision. He wanted somebody who he could work with and, and I think, you know, sort of know where his bread is buttered. Well, Rick, very, very smart, savvy guy. And I think Rick always saw that one day he would be running the show and what's the best path to get there. And I think Hurley was, again, the the least worst of, of all the alternatives. Yeah, yeah. Um, he found out about it on an elevator. Yeah, right, on an Maury, elevator. Maury yeah. looked at him and goes, they're making your script. I don't know why. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's exactly what happened. And uh, so they, they end up doing conspiracy, which, again, you know, people remember the exploding head, the scanners moment, which right. done on video is just one of the worst effects in the history of Star Trek. But I love, especially that first act or two, where, like, something is really off and they don't know what yeah. it is, and they're meeting in, you know, what happened with Una Carapleides? Strange Una caves. <laughs> in strange caves. But even that strange cave is spooky, and the way it's lit yeah. is spooky. And, and like, then that crazy guy with the head. I mean, come on. He's awesome. By the way, I want to stand up <laughs> for the, uh, the scanners moment. Now, look. Yeah, I mean, as like the way that the effect was realized wasn't great. But what I loved about it was I loved the ambition of it, man. Like Star Trek had never even attempted anything like that before. And it was not screwing around, man. It was like, it was almost, you know, what they call in football a statement game, right? It, it, it doesn't even matter if, like, you win the damn game. It's like you went out there, like, you punched the other team in the face and, like, phasering that thing and just utterly destroying it. You know, it's like, we come in peace, shoot to kill, shoot to kill, shoot to kill. And just zapping that whatever the hell it was was fantastic. And at the end of that episode, when it was just that they sent that signal out into space, mm -hmm. and it was just the star field getting it's closer. It's like the end closer. of V. Yep. Holy awesome. <laughs> I just kind of leaned into the TV until my head hit the screen. Just, uh, and I always wanted to see that followed up. It, in some ways, it kind of was. I, I think, like, there's no room for that anymore because of the Dominion. I mean, they've they've kind of covered the, you know, people. Yeah, because Homefront and Paradise Lost yeah. were basically the sequel to this that you mm -hmm. always wanted, but yep. not, you yeah. know. It's basically the same, the same beats. And done big better. surprise, big surprise. I liked it. Yeah. So there. Yeah. So there. I liked it. Get Mikey that. likes it. Mikey <laughs> likes it. He likes it. Easy. <laughs> Give it to Darren. He'll watch anything. <laughs> but um, I, I just think it's so creepy at the beginning, and so you know, and they don't yeah. know what's going on. There's some kind of weird conspiracy in Starfleet, and Trilus you know, Scott. Trilus Scott. 
I know. I, I love that scene. Michael Berryman as the alien captain, and it's it's, it's good. It's the just dude, good is stuff he the dude there. from The Hills Have Eyes? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. just took so much for them to stray from what they were doing on the show. So whenever they did an episode like this or Q Who or whatever it might be, it was so startling and so powerful because it was so different from everything else they were doing. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing. All of Tracy's stuff, because season one, they weren't pushing the envelope. There were a lot of warmed over, you know, Star Trek uh, rip, you know, rip offs of the original series. Like Home Soil was the devil in the dark done badly. And a lot of these episodes were very redolent of things that had been done before. All of Tracy's were different. Haven, you know, at least he was trying to do like a comedy and a romance. And then the big goodbye was noir and, and then conspiracy was a conspiracy thriller. It's like, that's interesting. I mean, Star Trek wasn't, it wasn't that elastic at the time. You know, they were kind of doing the same thing every week. Right. So that was, you know, it was pretty cool. And, um, you know, there were only, a, you know, we talked about, we did a nice episode on the first season. You know, there's 11001, there's Heart of, Heart of Glory. There's, you know, there are a couple of good episodes which don't get the credit they deserve because it's fashionable to say, oh, season one and two were just awful. It didn't get good till season three, which is, it's like saying, oh, season three of the original Star Trek is just awful, right? It's not as good. Not entirely, yes. But yeah, 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 exactly. Um, So, so, hey, so he he didn't want to come back. He wasn't going to come back. And it was extraordinary. And actually, you'll appreciate this. They made a really crazy deal um, I think it was with William Morris. So, and they were desperate to hold on to writers because they had fired so many people. And so they made a deal where he didn't have to be in the room. He didn't even have to come to work half the time. He could sort of work on his own. And they would just like, he'd pitch something and he'd get to write almost like a freelance model. And then, you know, drop, drop it off. And like he could come and go as he wanted to, which was crazy. He was a consulting producer. He, well, yeah, he was kind of a consulting producer before. That, that was, was a really thing. common thing, you know, and uh, th- people really resented it, you know, because why doesn't Tracy have to be here? You know, why, why why is Tracy not here? You know, it's like, well, because Tracy gets to do what Tracy wants to do. But, um, you know, a lot of people had been saying that, oh, you know, you're going to be the, you're going to inherit the show from Gene because Gene likes you so much. So Hurley kind of cut his legs off. And what you see is, the three episodes in the th- second season are not nearly as good. The best of them is the schizoid man. And that is a direct uh, reference to Tracy's favorite show, The Prisoner. Yeah. Yep. Next time on Star Trek, The Next Generation. There are two disparate personalities within Lieutenant Commander Data. Data is invaded by the soul of a dead scientist. I will never have to face death again. Are you hurting me? That turns him into an alien Jekyll and Hyde. Data is dead. Who's next? And triggers a violent assault on Star Trek, The Next Generation. And I've got to be honest, I don't think I did a particularly good job on it. Um, it was, it never kind of developed into what I was hoping for. And the main, main reason that I wanted to do the Schizoid Man was I really had come to have a great respect for Brent by this point and had not really done anything that had focused fully on Brent. So I really wanted to do a Brent episode. That was really what was my motivation. And I thought 
you know, one of the strong things about the Data character is, uh, again, his uh, exploration of how human is he, how human isn't he, and, you know, how much of an android is he, how much is he sort of becoming like Pinocchio, is he starting to develop into something else. And that was kind of where the original concept came from. And I wrote a pretty mediocre script. Um, again, of course, I say that it, the script been left alone and had it developed in the normal, respectful way that it's supposed to, I think I could have made it a good script by the time it was done. Because the script itself wasn't that great, and then because Maury started his meddling there, and, and at this point he was, I think, kind of testing how much he could meddle and get away with. Um, and I didn't really resist that much on that. He did his own sort of rewrite on it, which technically wasn't supposed to happen. I was so caught up in Fire in the Sky at the time that I wasn't fully involved. In, and uh, so. And it wasn't a script that you were passionate about to begin with. At the end, I wasn't. I was maybe at the beginning, but not at the end. So I thought it was a mediocre show. I think it has some funny moments in it. I think there's a couple of moments in it that are funny that make me laugh that I like. Um, but I don't think I did a good service to Brent. I think I could have done better for Brent on it. But that's the reason I did it. And had I known that the next two would end up being 50 times worse, <laughs> I don't know what I really would have, would have, would have done. Um, but yeah, that was what happened with the Schizoid Man. And I would say that's when things started to take a turn. I mean, I had certainly my, my first semi-negative experience on the show. I actually, I really like that episode. That was uh, one in the second season that feels like a standout to me. Like, like almost to the point of, am I crazy or is this actually really good? Um, and it was, you know, it was just, it was, again, it was different. And I think the thing that was fascinating about Next Gen is that, especially very early on, the, uh, when the, when the show was just kind of trying to be Star Trek, it wasn't very good. Um, but when it showed its dark side, it was better. It was just, it was more interesting. It was like the, um, maybe it was just because it was different, but there was more stuff for the characters to do. Mm -hmm. And what I loved about the Schizoid Man was that it felt like a monster movie. Mm -hmm. You know, it just, there was, it had that kind of, that edge to it. And uh, and that was, edge was not something you got a lot of on uh, on the next generation. Oh, God. You got a lot of vanilla on the next generation. And well, the first I thought it was really, you know, you, you he. It's funny because now we've seen so many Brent-centric episodes, but they didn't know how to use Brent at the time. I mean, he'd been in data lore, but you know, Tracy had really set out to do an episode which would give Brent something to play. So when you know M, uh, W. Morgan Shepard's uh, scientist sort of possesses data, you know, it, it, it's a possession story. So Brent could do something else. He has that great line to the know no he gives the eulogy to love, him. <laughs> to love him was to know him was to love him. And play this egotistical scientist, and that stuff is really priceless. It's really fun. Um, it, it's a pretty good episode, and he he said it, it was the least rewritten of the three episodes he would do that season. And it was interesting because this is the year of the writer strike. But during the um, during the summer, he had been tasked with a couple of tasks. One of them was uh, Gates was leaving the show, 
and they were going to introduce a new doctor. And at the time, they didn't know it was going to be Moldauer. So he had the idea for a doctor character um, that could not tell a lie. Like that, no matter how, I was like, doctor, am I going to die? And he goes, yes, yes, you are. You know, and it was like, so it was uh, this alien race is completely honest. So they came to me and said, there's certain things we can't talk to you about because of the writer's strike, but uh, we want you. So all of a sudden there was a great opportunity for me because they were talking about bringing me back for the third year. And I was saying, look, guys, I really am very into this movie I'm trying to make. So I don't think I would want to come back for the third year. And I certainly would not want to be on the staff, really. But let me think about it. And if I would have a chance to actually impact the show uh, in ways other than just doing a script or whatever, then it, it might interest me. So... The two things that started to happen between those two seasons were I started to work on a new character to replace the doctor who I'd heard was leaving, I think. Right. So I thought of this alien doctor who comes from a planet where the ultimate uh, devotion is to 100% truth 100% of the time. And the idea of even if you were treating a patient and find out they were terminal, you would just tell them, you're terminal, you're going to die soon, and that's the way they live. And I thought that would, again, be a way to create some conflict on the show. So that character would be, you know, that would sort of be the, the hook of the character is a race that's 100% devoted to truth 100% of the time. Thank you. And I worked on that for a while. So why they would be a doctor, I have, I have no idea. So he pitched this character of, uh, of the doctor, the, 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 you know, the, the honest doctor, and that didn't go anywhere. So they actually gave him, um, they had hoped to bring back Leonard Nimoy and they were going to do a sequel. To sitting on the edge of forever. You remember that pitch, Ed? Oh, yeah. The other thing that happened that was very exciting was they came to me and said, we think we can get Leonard to do the opening episode of the second season, and we want you to write it. Will you uh, come up with something that would be really cool for him? So I cooked up a sequel to City on the Edge of Forever. And uh, I called it Return to Forever. And I worked out a way where the Spock from our, the classic Spock, and the Spock from the next generation would actually both end up together at the same time by using the portal. Mm -hmm. And they would both be on the episode together etc and that was kind of the twist to it right so i was very excited about that and got going on it and was off to a very fast start and was really looking forward to showing everybody yeah. this and then word got back to me the deal with leonard fell out he's not going to be doing it. so i was very very <laughs> crestfallen because i really really thought that would have been a really interesting show so then the strike ended ended up uh Ending. They were going to go back to what was now the most forbidden place in the galaxy, which was that time portal. Mm -hmm. 
and they were going to have to actually violate the rules about non-interference with it or non-whatever with it. And it was going to create a whole Pandora's box. They were going to create a terrible, unforeseen thing, which only the Spocks from the two different time periods by coming together could actually fix. Yeah, we'll have the two Spocks, one from the original, you know, Leonard Nimoy as he is, and the next generation Spock together in a story. But I think they ran into issues with Harlan, didn't they? I think it was issues with Harlan. I think Leonard wasn't sure he wanted to do it, I think. There were there are a couple of issues that prevented it from happening. But it's interesting that they were willing to go there so early because ultimately they never touched on the original until Sarek in the third season. But here they were talking about doing, um, you know, a direct sequel to kind of City on the Edge Forever, you know, in the second season. Right. I think the writer's strike also partially torpedoed that as well. Um but, you know, after that, that was kind of the end of the fun for him because he did two episodes after that that he took his name off. It's not unlike, you know, um, Gene Kuhn, you know, sort of dumping these scripts, third season, taking his name off of, you know, Spock's brain, Lee Cronin, you know, mm-hmm. taking his name off of Spectre of the Gun. Um, you know, some of these episodes that he wasn't as invested in that got rewritten. In this case... They got rewritten to various effects. I, writing under the pseudonym Keith Mills, he delivered one of our favorite guilty pleasures, yeah. once known as the Blue Moon Hotel, later <laughs> retitled The Royale. Next time on Star Trek, The Next Generation. It seems like we're trapped in here. Proceed with caution. A dangerous mission uncovers a secret alien passage. Welcome to the Hotel Royale. Where the crew become prisoners in a fictional casino that's all too real. Lock onto the landing party, beam them up. Got nothing to lock on to, sir. Now, they must gamble with their lives in a deadly game of survival on Star Trek The Next Generation. The Royal. With, with cheese. Yeah. Oh, my <laughs> with God. Lots of cheese. <laughs> no lack of cheese. And, right, uh, Ed? Absolutely. No, there was, it is. And that, now, that's the one that started. Uh, I haven't seen the episode in a long time, but. Wasn't the original concept that it was like a dead astronaut or something that mm-hmm. was right? Is that still there? I don't remember. Well, yeah, 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 it yeah. is. But he was oh, the last survivor of this crashed. I've lost expedition. all tradition. Sorry. And you know, a lot of the premise remains the whole idea that they, um, uh, you know, this astronaut is there. But in the original, the original version, Tracy's original version, it has a much more emotional ending. That one of the away team that's killed, um, she ends up when they leave being there to base it. It's, it's kind of the Susan Oliver, Jeffrey Hunter yeah. twist. In I the mentioned cage. that to Tracy, actually, yeah. Yeah, she ends up staying with him, so he's not alone, um, you know, her, you know, because they resurrect her after she dies. You know, it, of course, in this, in the, the final version, they have to finish the novel so they can get out. And uh, it was the end of the season. They were over budget. And, you know, they basically grabbed whatever flats they could from, you know, that were lying around the studio to create, you know, a Vegas casino. Um, yeah. And the, you know, the create- Milkotian version of a Vegas casino. <laughs> <laughs> we can totally attest to the, <laughs> to the gritty realism of it having, you know, and we talked about this in our Trexpress briefing room uh, episode of the, the Royale. But uh, I mean, yeah, yeah. When we got stuck in uh, in Caesars trying to find absinthe and we just kept going through doors and <laughs> not knowing where the, the hell we were. Um, uh, but uh, The show, not the drink. 
the show, not the drink. Yeah. Although you could argue it was kind of the Rio because, uh, you know, talking about being stuck in an awful novel, we were stuck Probably. in an awful art. Oh, but that you don't want to finish. <laughs> right. It's not like out. it's let me out. Star Trek's the rooster crows at midnight. <laughs> but um, it's interesting because Tracy had designed the episode to be a lot more surreal. Um, and because, again, he wanted this to kind of be like the prisoner. Um, but, you know, Hurley didn't get it at all. And he did a, did a pretty um, uh, um, big rewrite on it, uh, which ended it up uh, cha- changing it uh, dramatically. Well, it's, it's funny you talk about uh, pain because there was another great uh, script that uh, or pitch that uh, Tracy had really wanted to do, which is the infamous Genius is Pain. And in Genius is Pain, he postulates... Um, a race of beings that study and pursue art and all this highfalutin, uh, you know, the arts and science and stuff until they're a certain age. And after that, they live a completely hedonistic lifestyle. They drop all those, you know, pursuits to pursue a completely hedonistic great. life. Well, and this prompted when he, the greatest. No, I mean the lifestyle. I don't mean. <laughs> Well, and he wanted was, John Cleese to be the alien in that. I remember he that. He wanted wow. John Cleese to be the alien, but this prompted the greatest response ever from Gene Roddenberry when he said, friend, genius is pain, and proceeded to tell um, Tracy all about why genius was pain and the difference between the givers of pain and delight. And this is what Tracy had to say. I was on another one of my... Quests to create a new character for the show. So I had an idea. Who would be a really interesting alien on Star Trek? And I got the idea of uh, John Cleese. So I created a show called Genius is Pain. And it was about a race of aliens who are mathematical geniuses. They spend like the first 20 or 30 years of their lives devoted totally to mathematics, the mathematics of space travel, anything like that. And they're off the charts geniuses. They can do things with um, that engineers can do like nobody else can, the whole race. But once they turn like 30, they have a philosophy that all of life should be devoted to bohemian pursuits. So they are completely bohemians from 30 on. And they're the type that if you invite them to your house and they feel like spray painting uh, a four-letter word on your the wall of your nursery, they're going to do it because to suppress it would be against their nature or whatever. So I was writing this thing called Genius's Pain with the main character absolutely a million percent written for John Cleese. The Enterprise runs into an emergency and they end up having to transport a group of these people somewhere because of their uh, scientific knowledge. But they end up turning the Enterprise into a complete zoo at the same time. And that was the, the idea behind it. So I wrote the outline and I submitted it. And I would say it was probably about five pages long. And one day I'm sitting in my office and Roddenberry calls me. And he sounded lit. He sounded like he was not all there. 
and it started with the hello friend <laughs> and um, he went into this long long rambling speech genius I love the title of your outline genius is pain genius is pain because let me tell you something genius is pain you're absolutely right it is pain he goes but in fact all of life is basically divided into two things pleasure and pain all of life is pleasure and pain okay so he said the pain of and then he started to list things that he found painful and he started and he went on and on and on okay and I was literally every now and then just going uh-huh mm -hmm. the pain of dealing with network executives the pain of going through divorce the pain of seeing your children's faces when you have to tell them you don't love their mother anymore the pain of spending you know 18 straight hours writing a perfect scene and then having somebody say it has to be changed for some fucking stupid reason I mean so he's going on and on I would really give anything to have a tape recording of it because it was really one for the ages he just went on and on and I was wondering like when and where is this gonna come to end and end <laughs> right. it's a lot of pain so he finally comes up for air and says well and as for pleasure uh, my idea of pleasure is waves and waves and waves of cum exploding out of me that's what he said huh? and I absolutely was so shocked yeah, and he had right. said it in that sort of Irish voice yeah, yeah, yeah. that I this is now this is absolutely true I covered the phone as hard as I could. I stuck my head as far out the window of my office as I could and uncontrollably started laughing. Like I couldn't believe what I had heard. And it was like said to me by like a leprechaun. That's what it, it sounded like. So now I'm terrified to come back to the phone that he's going to have heard my reaction and my relationship with him is going to be destroyed for all time so I very warily sneak myself back onto the phone and he's in the middle of talking about more things that bring him pleasure that I had completely missed yeah that's some story <laughs> that is one of the great you know one of the classic Robin Bird stories of all time he looked like a leprechaun <laughs> it sounded like a leprechaun I, I <laughs> Tracy, uh... <laughs> They're trying to steal me lucky charms, Tracy. <laughs> Genius is paying, friend. Um, yeah, he loved which to is tell well, that story. Uh, he loved to tell that story. He loved to tell that story. And he told it really well. Um, of course, uh, his final script, which is interesting that this was a swan song, was a sequel to The Big Goodbye and to... Um, Haven. And to Haven. It was called Manhunt. It's an absolutely dreadful episode. He wrote under the pseudonym of Keith Mills. And he was really, at that point, he was, you know, he was kind of out the door and this was an obligation. And he just, he knew it was going to be rewritten anyway. And, uh, you know, instead of basing it on the Maltese Falcon, he said, okay, I'm going to 
based this on the little sister and um you know the the the, the um Dixon Hill story and that and then of course it brought back uh walks out of Troy who's looking for a mate because basically Gene had said to Tracy says ah oh, get Majel off my back we need to write her another episode <laughs> she, she's fucking me so you know as a favor to Gene he wrote another episode for um for Majel and it, it certainly was not his shining moment so, so in a sense, it's a sequel to uh, I Mud. Think about it. <laughs> Stella! <laughs> now, Mark, which episode was it? Because I know one of the big turnoffs for, for Tracy, we realized he had, like, there's no opportunity to do the things he wanted to do. Is He wanted then one of the episodes with Data in tribute to Picard coming on the bridge bald. And... Everyone said, that'll insult Patrick Stewart. You can't do it. You can't do it. You can't have him uh, come on the bridge bald. Doesn't he know he's bald? (laughs) He doesn't. I think he ended up coming with the beard instead like Riker or something. But he was not allowed to come in. I don't remember which episode that was. But there was one thing that that's something that Tracy, for some reason, really wanted and was really pissed off that nobody would let him do it because Patrick's feelings would be hurt. Yeah. I I don't remember... I don't remember. I don't remember. But uh, that was that was crazy. That was absolutely crazy. Um, yeah. So Tracy at that point was he was kind of done with Star Trek. He, you know, he didn't like being rewritten. Um, and you know, look, Tracy. You got to remember also, Tracy came from you know this legacy of Mel Torme and stuff. He was a nepo baby, right? So. Um, you know, he didn't tolerate fools gladly because he didn't have to, right? right? He didn't have to work if he didn't want to. And so, you know, after he leaves Star Trek, he did have, you know, he had this passion to do sliders and he sells it to Fox, but he's only on the show for two years because he's bumping heads left and right with the Fox executives, which he felt wanted to dumb it down. So after two seasons, they sell it to sci-fi and then they bring in another writer, David Peckinpah, who is a nephew of um, Sam Peckinpah to run it. They, they needed and- another Nepo baby. <laughs> but he was not, you know, he was not involved with it. And he said he really didn't watch the show until they wrote out John Reese Davies. And then he um, he said he watched it and he was just horrified with what they had done with the show. And it's true because, you know, I did ask him, I said, you know, what did you learn from Star Trek uh, that helped you with sliders? You know the book um, Jumping the Shark? The book... Jumping the Shark named Sliders as the number one example of a TV show that jumped the shark of all time. That's what they said. They just said what happened to it. In other words, what it, what it started at and what it ended up. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, you always said it was with the dinosaur episode. But, uh... Well, there was a Roger Daltrey two-part episode, too. And I had not watched the show for a long time, and I thought, well, it's Roger Daltrey. It's a two-part episode. It's the episode where we kill off uh, Reese Davies. So you know what? I'm curious. I'll watch it. Oh, that's got to be hard. Though. I mean, you're, you're you baby. know what's really like hard about it was that no one was at the top minding the show. So there were continuity errors throughout the episodes. I mean, there were people wearing the wrong clothes saying things and then contradicting themselves in the next scene. I mean, it truly was a nightmare. It really was awful. I could not believe a single fan 
would have stayed with the show? And, you know, obviously the answer is the allegorical metaphors and all that and the humor and to have all these things that the original Star Trek had and to ignore network executives. <laughs> all things he learned from Gene Roddenberry. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You know what's funny? You know, you talk about the Mel Torme thing a minute ago. I remember he said that Leonard Mazelish was nice to him. He was the only one he was nice to yes. because the Mel Torme fan. So right. that bought Gene's you know, lawyer Leonard Mazelish. Mm-hmm. Who that? created a lot? I'm just telling the audience who may not know who he is. Leonard yeah. Mazelish was Gene's attorney who had created a lot of drama on the show yeah. um, and was rewriting. Rewriting episodes without being a member of the WGA. Exactly. And he could be very difficult and people, a lot of people didn't like him, but he got along really well with Tracy and Tracy felt it was because he was a big fan of his dad's. Yeah. Yeah. Just a little tidbit. Yeah. I'd never never realized the SCTV connection until I heard it from you, Mark. But, Mm. uh, you know, uh, uh, Rick Moranis did... A, an impersonation of Mel Torme on the show, singing the national anthem. And it's one of the best bits they ever did. So I, I wonder if uh, Tracy had any connection with that. Oh, that's interesting. I don't know. That's interesting. But yeah, and then he went to Saturday Night Live. Because Tracy was very funny. You know, in a way, Tracy was a lot, a lot like our friend Alan Spencer. He had a lot of success, you know, at a young age and mm-hmm. very funny, but loved genre. Right. You know, and... um and, uh, you know, but at the end of the day, I think, you know, when he was done with Star Trek and he had his experience with sliders, um, you know, he also had written an early draft of I Am Legend when it was going to be uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. So he mm-hmm. gets a credit on I Am Legend with Will Smith, but he wasn't really involved at that point. But it was um, he had done he was a huge Richard Matheson fan. I remember he was very excited about doing I Am Legend. Um, so he'd done a lot of features, you know, a lot of features that weren't getting made and he, you know, um, and, uh, but after, you know, after sliders, he kind of went radio silent, you know, and, uh, you know, I remember, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't speak to him for quite a you know, while. And then when we were doing the book, when we do a 50 year mission, I reached out to him for the first time in, in years and it was so great to see him, you know, and that was the last time I ever saw Tracy, you know, over, uh, Disco fries at the Beverly uh, Glen Delicatessen, um, and I spoke to him after you did because you said he was annoyed at me <laughs> because I didn't send him something I was going to send him in 1989. Apparently, yeah. and this is 2014 we're talking about. Yeah, sure. So I get on the phone. With, I just remember getting on the phone with Tracy, and I'm like, "Hey, you know, how are you?" And he's reading very friendly. I said, "I understand you're upset with me." I said, "Tracy, what did I not send you?" He goes, "I can't remember now, but I know it was something." <laughs> and that was it. That was so okay. <laughs> that traveled from 20, uh, 1989 to twenty fourteen. But okay. Wow. Well, because you had spent some time with him when you came out to LA. I remember back in the eighties, late eighties, early nineties. I did. I came out right. I think during the strike or right before the strike, one or the other. I was doing research. What I thought was going to be a next generation, you know, making of the next generation book, because Herb Bright had sort of befriended me and and was giving me all sorts of. Uh, Who's another no- writer on? Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. And, and Tracy, I just I don't I mean, it's kind of vague. It was 88. So it's a long time ago. But I remember going to his apartment and I remember calling him uh, to say, you know, what time should I be there? And I got his voicemail. His voicemail ended with the phrase, let's not forget, let's lick Bush in 88. 
And I thought that was very subversive and funny back then. Of course, I was young. What can I tell you? So, well, and then you went to dinner with her, right? And, well, uh, and with, Tracy. Yeah, that was uh, not Tracy, but it was I, w- I went to dinner with Herb Wright and his wife, and then another writer is named Steve D'Souza, which you guys may yeah, you know, right. you guys, but the audience may or may not know, has written a lot of big action movies, and his wife. And as I told Mark recently, at the time, I had this huge crush on Beverly D'Angelo. Uh, and we went on, we went to this restaurant, and she's sitting right across from me while we're having dinner. Very difficult meal to eat when. You're sitting there staring at Beverly D'Angelo and you're, people are wondering, what are you looking at? Nothing, nothing. So anyway, but yeah, it was interesting though, going out with them. And Herb was another guy like Tracy who was pretty outspoken or outspoken and forthcoming about really what went on behind the scenes. The two of them were very illuminating, I think. And Herb was both- interesting because Herb was a guy who was on the show early. Then he left, but then he came back that, right. you know, uh, you know, he'd been there under Hurley, but then he came back under Pillar. You know, which was weird. And he was crazy, but he got along with like people like Ron and some of the younger writers. He didn't stay long the second time, right? He didn't stay long, no. Oh, that was another thing that uh, Tracy would, would talk about, which I, I love that story. He said, so he had an office that was uh, in the Hart building that was like on the top floor, which is where his office was. And he said it was right next to the ladder that people would use to go up to the roof because when they want the writers wanted to go up and smoke pot, they would go up the ladder to the roof of the um, of the heart building. And so they would, oh, Tracy, would you mind if we just no, go ahead? And they would go out to the ladder and go up to the roof. And uh, and then he said he would always know when people were up there. And then he would be like, if he had nothing to do, he would go up the ladder and join them. There you go. He did yeah. enjoy his uh, smoking, shall we say? <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. But he threw great parties. I got to tell you, you know, I mean, I remember on Coldwater Canyon, that's where Mel's house was. And uh, I went to a bunch of parties at his house and they, they weren't as good as Gene's parties, but they were pretty good parties. Yeah, you know, I, <laughs> I mean, you know, the house was half the size of the Rodberries, but it was it was a good it was a, it was a, it was a good, good place. It means it was freaking enormous. <laughs> but uh but like Tracy was Tracy was one of us. He was a guy who loved genre, you know, who didn't take it too too seriously, um who was just fun to be around and smart and um you know, it's just so sad, you know, because when you hear it's always sad to hear uh, these uh, you know anyone involved in the Star Trek legacy passing away. Um, and we've lost so many people that we've known, that we've respected, that we've idolized. But, you know, Tracy at 64 years old, I mean, when I heard that, it really hit me hard because, of course, you know, not only knowing Tracy, but, you know, I, I mean, look, it's, 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 we've lost too many people from next gen. I mean, you expect at this point when you hear somebody from the original era and there's not a whole hell of them left, but, um, but next generation now, um, you know, obviously, when Michael passed, it was pillar. It was so tragic. You know, having done, died of throat cancer, um, you know, way too young, um, and that was that was awful. Um, but I was really shocked to hear that Tracy had had passed away. You know, obviously Hurley was older. You know, when Maurice passed away, um, Herb Wright had died of uh, cancer. Um, but uh, you know, Tracy really came as a came as a shock. Well, we've had to do too many of these episodes. 
We have, and I was I, I, I'm not glad. I don't know how you would say glad, but I was I was happy to see that the Academy honored Manny Cotto uh, during the in memoriam section of the Emmys last night, or yeah. when the Emmys aired. Um, it was it was good because so many times they they miss important people, and uh, you know it was it was good. Oh, speaking of, of Manny Cotto, there is a, Ma- a Tracy connection. You worked um from with Manny on Odyssey Five. He he was uh, hmm. on that once. Um, he loved his sci-fi. Tracy loved his, his science fiction. So, and I know he was a Buckaroo Banzai fan, so he obviously liked working with Peter Weller too, which is celebrating his 40th anniversary this year. But uh, I'm really, you know, to the extent that I can be glad, I'm, I'm really happy that we have the chance to sort of do a deeper dive on these people, whether it's Manny or when we did our Dorothy Fontana episode, you know, now in the case of Tracy, um, because these are people who aren't necessarily, you know, household word, you know, household names. But at the same time, even among the Star Trek community, I don't know how well a lot of these people are, are known. They know the actors when Nichelle yeah. passes away, or you know, when um, you know somebody when an actor uh, passes away. But they don't, they don't necessarily know the writers and and the artists who who make the show. Um, and uh, you know, Tracy. Although, you know, it was for a short time, he was the future of Star Trek. And uh, it wasn't to be. Um, that was a rough, a rough two years. There was a lot of drama. And obviously that's something that Ed and I covered uh, extensively in volume two of our um, oral history, the 50-year mission. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, well, I'm, not, you know, I'm just saying, if people, would you like to I know agree. more? This is not <laughs> yeah. a plug. I'm not like shamelessly plugging our book it's not in the a middle plug of at all. a eulogy. I'm saying that if you want to understand the context of all this and you right. want to know more, then the book is out there. You know, available in I'll paperback. tell you what this reminds me of, like uh, it, what you're kind of saying about Tracy and kind of and that that period. Um, I'll never forget this. This was in, uh, actually, I think one of your uh uh, articles in Cine Fantastic in talking to uh, to Nick Meyer, and I think it was looking at at Star Trek Six, and Nick had a quote. I'm paraphrasing as I can't remember exactly, but he was talking about um, you know carrying the ball like being on a football team, and you don't always get it all the way down the field, but you fucking carry it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Tracy was one of those guys who, when the ball needed to be carried down the field, they, you know, didn't get it all the way down there. I mean, because the, you know, look, it's just it. The first two seasons were what they were, but he carried the goddamn ball, right? Yeah. Because he was one of those guys that they looked to who carried the ball. Uh, and uh, you know, it's 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 funny what you said about how like the the casual fan knows the actors' names; they know who those people are and yes they're important right but it's uh it's i think it's good that when when something like this happens it's good to take a moment to remind fans that all of this stuff that they love springs from a place it springs from particular imaginations and you know i i think obviously it would be it's it's always better when we can celebrate those those imaginations with people when they can be a part of this show with us. But even under these circumstances, I think it's it's good to kind of share this stuff with the with the fans and give them something to to think about. Um, that's that's more than just the 
the surface because guys like Tracy were critical to Star Trek The Next Generation surviving into its third season. No, I think against the self-imposed limitations that the show put on, you know, they put on themselves. And he was constantly, even in his brief time, and I think that's one of the things I admire the most about him, is that he didn't want to just settle for what they were doing. He saw the bigger picture, and he really pushed it as much as he was allowed to, uh, to reach out and go beyond what they were doing. Yeah, that's great. Well, really well said, both of you, and and I appreciate that. Um, I had wanted to reach out to Tracy for this very show recently, and I was having a really difficult time tracking him down. Again, I said, he doesn't use email, he didn't use text, and, and the number I had for him had, had, had changed. And um, and obviously, uh, you know, it came as such a shock to see he had passed away. And, you know, if anything, I would say, you know, I, and it left me in a place where I wish I had reached out to him sooner. I wish I had tried harder to find him. You know, I wish I had stayed in touch and, you know, that's the truth of any anyone that you care about in your life. You know, don't wait till it's too late. You know, if it's somebody you're thinking about, you haven't talked to in a while, you know, make the effort to give them a call or send an email or reach out um, because you may not have the chance to do it later. And um, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really sad that I, I, you know, didn't have the chance to see Trace in the last couple of years um, because he was a good guy. And... Uh, he was a, a valuable part of the Star Trek legacy, and more important, like he was a, he was a he was a decent person. You know, we didn't even talk about he was very active um, with pet rescue, helping animals and pets, and 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 using his his uh, inheritance and and his success um, for for good causes. And uh, his his um, I don't have it here. But I do know that, you know, people asked if you want to make a donation in his memory. Um, it was for a, a pet cause. And let me see if I can look that up. Because I do, before we bring this episode to a close, and I probably should have done this earlier. Um, let me see. Um, that sound you hear is the searching on the computer interwebs. After this musical interlude, Mark will return with the name. Did Mel Torme do a version of uh, The Girl from Ipanema? I'm sure he, he did. I think he might have. <laughs> she closed well, the show. Look that up now. Hang on a second. Yeah, right. Yeah. Here, it says, Tracy Torme uh, was a dedicated animal activist as well as an expert on football and baseball, especially when it came to his favorite team, the Angels. In addition to his uh, brothers and sisters, survivors include his second wife, Robin, his other siblings, Stephen, Melissa, and stepbrother, Kurt. Donations in his memory can be made to the Gentle Barn Sanctuary or any animal charity. So that's the Gentle Barn. If you want to make a donation in memory of... That's up of, here by uh, me, actually. Tracy. Oh, is it? Yeah. Yeah. So... Anyway, I'm I'm really like when we get to do these episodes, things like this. I, I think it's meaningful. I'm I'm really glad that we could spotlight um, Tracy's contributions to Star Trek and yep. beyond, obviously. And uh, I appreciate everyone joining us. And um, hopefully, we don't have to do many more of these shows anytime soon. Amen. Yeah, Ed Gross, thank you for joining us. Thank you for making part of it. I do appreciate it. If you're a fan of Ed Gross, and who is it? He is truly America's sweetheart. His book, uh, Voices from Krypton, is out now from Nacelle Books. 
Uh, he is also a prolific writer, and uh, his books include The Oral Histories, The 50-Year Mission, uh, Oral History of Star Trek, as well as the more recent books, uh, They Should Have Killed His Dog, Complete History of John Wick and Gun Fu. And uh, you can read his latest on the interwebs, uh, where he covers pop culture beat for a variety of outlets. And, of course, you know all of us. We're the Trexperts, and we'll be back next week with an all-new episode. Uh, if you want to subscribe to our sister podcast, Deck 78, please visit trexpertsplus.com. And we hope you'll be joining us at one of the many live events we'll be attending this year at GalaxyCon and San Diego Comic-Con. And uh, it wouldn't be the same without you. Except for a few of you that I can't stand, I really hope don't show up. But um, oh, see, but you're listening anyway, so that's what matters. <laughs> so when oh you my. give my eulogy, <laughs> yeah, he was a bastard, but he thanked people <laughs> <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Anyway, um, and our, again, our, we should say our condolences, of course, to Tracy's uh, family and friends. Of course, um, you know he he had a lot of good a lot of good friends. And they were good volleyball players, I can tell you that. And they knew a lot more about football than I did. You know, that's why I don't think I ever got invited to Bill Shatter for football. Showed no interest, none, none whatsoever. Yes, that's the reason. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anyway, uh, I want to thank you guys. Um, and uh, we'll be back next uh, Thursday with an all new episode. And you can share your own thoughts about Tracy and his uh, episodes at Inglorious Trek, Inglorious Trexperts on all your favorite social channels, and even your least favorite social channels. We're on all of them, sad to say. Um, so uh, join us next week on behalf of Ashley Edward Miller, Karen Dockerman, myself, Mark A. Altman. Keep on trekking, ingloriously, of course. Walk like a dragon Breathe smoke and flame Pray that you'll softly breathe your name Walk like a dragon Hold your head high And she may love you by and by Spring like a tiger Spit like a sidewind and rattlesnake Never forget that to get what you want You must reach out and take For your own sake Walk like a dragon Proud and profane Maybe the gods will smile Then in a Tiger, spit 
like a rattlesnake, walk like a dry. 